Welcome to the Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm your co-host, Matt Bernico. And I'm your other co-host, Dean Detlef. Dean, what's going on with you and your life, would you say? What's going on with me? Um, today I became a Canadian citizen. That was the big change whoa. in my life. I'm saying, whoa, like I didn't know that already, but I'll <laughs> pretend for the podcast. <laughs> yep, that's all right, folks. I have two citizenships all at once. Um Two citizens, one person, uh, living that duality life. Uh, you know what the early church fathers said about that? Uh, if you have two citizenships, it means you've stolen one from the poor. Mm, okay. So just hand that one, hand hand one of those off to somebody. I think. <laughs> yeah, I don't think they want it. <laughs> yeah, probably not. Well, <laughs> congratulations. Uh, I'm gonna drink a big Labatt Blue to celebrate your new country yeah thanks they did give us a very funny like little canadian flag and the flag itself is like (laughs) it's you know it's a little dowel rod and then on the dowel is the canadian flag but the material is like i don't know not quite uh cardstock paper but like basically cardstock paper and it's like man yeah i'm a citizen it should at least be like cloth that's how i feel about it (laughs) <laughs> well, how else are they going to pay for all these great uh, social benefits that you get <laughs> up in Canada? <laughs> That's right. They're not to. They got to cut all the corners to make sure everyone can get that great uh, that great health care. Yep, I got a letter from Justin Trudeau welcoming me to this great land. So I'll hold on to that and I'll show it to any police officer that stops me on the street. Yeah, Justin Trudeau. Uh, do you mean Fidel Castro's son? Right. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, That's pretty never gonna get old. No, it's that's my favorite conspiracy. I guess for people who don't know, there is an extremely funny conspiracy theory. It's not much of a conspiracy, I guess. The story is that uh, Justin Trudeau's real dad is not Pierre Trudeau, but Fidel Castro. And listen, it's a compelling case. Um, there's a lot going on. And if you simply look at pictures of Pierre and Fidel and look at Justin, I mean... It's enough to make it's you Google pretty, a little bit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's it's uncanny. That's my second favorite uh, conspiracy theory. My first one is just Bigfoot, just in general. Right. I don't know if Bigfoot's really a conspiracy, but uh, someone's been hiding his existence from me, and I don't like that. I yeah, think that, just let that let that freak flag fly, you know. Man, my seven year old nephew I just discovered is really into Bigfoot right now. And we were talking about it. And, you know, with a seven year old, you never really know how weird to get, I guess. So it's kind of a game of chicken to figure out, like, how weird you ought to be. At least that's how I feel as an uncle to a seven year old. Uh And uh, he did tell me unprompted that Bigfoot travels through portals. And I was like, okay, I'm here for it. Let's let's do this for sure. So pretty excited to go down that rabbit hole. That actually answers a lot of questions I have about Bigfoot. Like, how does he, you know, he's in Appalachia. He's in the Deep mm-hmm. South. He's uh, in California. He's in, you know, the mountains. Of He's in the Himalayas. And he just traveled through portals. It's portals. That's cool. Yeah. The best part is I did become the cool uncle because he found out that Bigfoot uh, is often sighted in Canada. And I'm the uncle who lives in Canada. So I'm the ticket to Bigfoot hunting and I do need to find a way to exploit that. So dear listener, if you've got a great plan for how I can impress the seven year old with, uh, some Bigfoot expeditions, I am all ears. The DMS are open. <laughs> you know, seven year olds have a pretty low bar when it comes to being amazed <laughs> at things. So it's true. It's true. I could just go to the woods, make a really big footprint and I'd probably be doing pretty well. Yeah, you know, I follow, okay, this is, we're already way off track, but we're only four minutes in, so it's okay. I follow this great TikTok channel of this guy who has, um, 
what he calls like a gifting rock. <laughs> so it's like uh, it's this rock that's on his property in the woods that's kind of out of ways. And uh, the, t- the the lore of the TikTok, which is a curse sentence to begin with, is that <laughs> um, is that like every day he'll go out there and and some kind of cryptid leaves him sort of like these little gifts on the rock, and um, they're they're gifts like uh, here's like a here's like a like a little hat that has been made out of um, you know vines or something, or here's a cool uh, deer skull. And then, like, in return, this guy on TikTok is like, okay, well, I'll go ahead and leave him something, too. And then he pulls out, like, a hand, a handful of, like, uh, store-brand Oreos. And he's like, here you go. <laughs> and I feel for the Bigfoot because, like, imagine being a Bigfoot in the, your entire life. You've subsisted completely off of, like, berries and twigs and, like, rabbits or whatever. And then all of a sudden someone gives you an Oreo and, like, <laughs> it just destroys your stomach. <laughs> Yeah, or so like you're a Bigfoot and you're toiling away on a beautiful hat made out of reeds or cattails or whatever you can find. And someone's <laughs> like, yeah, I just went to the Tesco or the the Walmart or whatever. <laughs> yeah, here's a handful of peanuts that I brought you. You know, so anyways, the, the moral of the story is that you don't have to have a Bigfoot. You just have to bring your this like seven year old out to the gifting rock. Right, right, right. There. Man, that's a great suggestion. Uh, I love that. It is a little close to the Tooth Fairy, but I think there's ways of getting around it. It's like the Tooth Fairy, but you're not giving any any body parts away. <laughs> that does help a lot. <laughs> <laughs> so there's that, at least. Okay. Well, that's a little gift I've kind of given to everybody out here listening. If you uh, have a little kid in your life, you could definitely trick them into believing a crypt is real. And wouldn't that be fun? Mm-hmm. Um. Or terrifying. Maybe it's bad advice now that I'm saying it more out loud. Um, You know what, though? uh, It's a great segue into talking about the topic of this podcast. And I'll tell you why, Matt, because. Oh, yeah, please do. We are we are talking about degrowth yet again, once again in this podcast. Um, And listen, if we don't degrow these big, giant global north economies that just are out of control and growing, uh, Bigfoot is going to have less and less room to walk through these portals over time, and all hope of discovering these great cryptids is going to get lost. So for that reason alone... That's the piece. Yeah, that's the piece that everyone's missing here in yeah. this conversation about climate change, is that we're also worried about, you know, the trees and the water and the crops, but we're not thinking about the Bigfoot. Yeah, I we're like that's bad. Loch Ness is going to get too hot. The loch's going to get too hot for the Loch Ness monster, and that's a big problem. And I think also we all know that vampires they can't deal with this. Not like not like the heat's okay because they're sort of immortal, but I think just like the the idea that like if all the humans die, what are they going to eat? You know, right? So they're oh, pretty boy. invested. Man, yeah. what a great post-apocalyptic story you did just write. Um, a good vignette. <laughs> Uh, it's like, there's gotta be like a good sort of baby shoes never worn, but like for that specific, uh, scenario, right. I don't know what it is, but again, the DMS are open. Um, so yeah, in this episode, we're going to talk about degrowth. We've done it on the show in the past. Um, it's all very interesting, uh, but it is also confusing. And so it's worth talking about more and more. We also just read a really neat book. Um, in our Discord. So we have a Discord channel for folks who support us on Patreon, and it's great. Lots of folks talking about interesting stuff, and every once in a while, we read a book together there. So we read this book called The Future is Degrowth, A Guide to a World Beyond Capitalism. What a great guide. 
uh, by a handful of authors, uh, Matthias Schmelzer, Andrea Vetter, and Aaron Vonson john I'm so sorry, Aaron. I'm probably doing a very bad job pronouncing your name. <laughs> uh, but it's a really interesting book. It was really fun to read together. And so Matt and I thought we could take this episode, debrief a little bit about it, and also get to some questions around uh, what Christians can do with all this kind of emerging degrowth literature. What good is it for us specifically? What do we have to contribute to it maybe and uh, yeah, I'm excited to see where this conversation goes. Yeah, me too. Uh, though I am still really hung up, hung up on this cryptid thing, um, <laughs> I will shift my brain for a minute here. You know, I think that degrowth is a pretty helpful idea. Um, at least it's been good for my brain to kind of think through like what steps did you know does humanity have to take as a whole, <laughs> which is uh, just as scary as cryptids, uh, in order to sort of thwart climate change or you know mitigate. Uh, mitigate um, carbon emissions and, and stuff like that. The worst of it, I guess. Um, and, you know, it's it's a hard thing, I think, for people to wrap their brains around because, like, it's basically shifting the entire way that people think. Um, but it's really important that we do that work and that we kind of figure out how to talk to people about it in particular because it there's there's no way to do it without, <laughs> without talking to people about it. There's no way to do it without, like, without organizing people around this idea, I think. Um, so that's kind of what we have to do. Uh, to get at that problem a little bit too, I kind of like um, I, I wrote an article for Sojourners really recently that explains degrowth as maybe a good tool for Christians to get past like the political and uh, theological roadblocks of like you know creation care or the ways that Christians think about um, uh, ecology. So I, I think like you know maybe we can kind of take these things together, right? We have a neat book. Um, we've been thinking about this together for a while. We've been talking about it in the Discord. So it's like. You know, we, we need to get to the bottom of this um, and, and kind of figure out, like, how it is we can use this idea as Christians? Like, wh what do we make of degrowth as sort of Christian people who are in Christian communities? And, like, what do we do with it kind of all going forward? Yeah, exactly. Um, it's helpful to have that conversation in the Christian context, too, I think, because a lot of degrowth literature has to do with things like the global South. And as we'll talk about in a minute, it's a bit of an umbrella term collecting lots of different uh, strands or social movements. It's kind of like amphibious, I guess. On the one hand, it's like an academic discourse where people are talking about political economy and all these details and so on. And on the other hand, it is a kind of organizing principle or organizing ideal. And uh, the thing about Christianity is that it does kind of also straddle that in some interesting ways, especially when we think about things like liberation theology, where you have people who have one foot in the theological tradition in a kind of academic way. They're talking about doctrines and ideas and so on and so forth. And then they have the other foot in the social movement or in the life of the poor and so on. And I think as degrowth is finding its own foot, I guess uh, my question has always been, what are Christians supposed to do with all this other than like read it, I guess, and be interested <laughs> and participate in the movements? Uh, but more and more, I, I've been thinking, especially since this uh, this Discord reading group, like maybe there's something kind of unique also to say, OK, liberation theology is a social movement out there and it's kind of trending in these ways. And maybe there's something that we can do about it. So, uh, you know, reading Matt's article really got me thinking about it. Reading this book got me thinking about it. And uh, yeah, good to chat through it. I think it's really important to parse it out, though, like kind of specifically, because Christianity is Christianity is such an interesting thing. I mean, depending on how it works for you in particular, I don't know. It's always kind of hard to say something sweeping about it. But Christianity is, I think, good at giving us like giving communities sort of like sets of like normative values about the world 
like, you know, um, and we, we do it all the time in this podcast, right? That like liberation theology is a particular type of Christianity that gives you this, um, this set of values about how you, you're supposed to care about the poor or how you, how you orient sort of your theology toward the poor, like that kind of thing. Right. And, um, that's all cool. And like eco theology does some similar work. I think that it gives you sort of a set of values that like generally you should care about, um, creation. You should care about ecology. You should care about non-human creatures for all these different sort of reasons. Um, but I guess the thing that, you know, uh, liberation theology less so, but but sometimes eco-theology more prominently will, like, not give you, like, a lot of sort of, like, concrete ideas to kind of go with, right? It, it gives you lots of, you know, um, vague sort of ideas, values, and, like, maybe some Bible verses or whatever. You, you know, you read the creation story from Genesis, and that's sort of, like, eco-theology. Um, this is, that's an oversimplification for sure, but that's sometimes how people kind of get at it. Um, but, you know, there's really nothing to kind of push into or do next. And I guess that's why I think degrowth is really helpful because it kind of gives you sort of like a checklist of things to think about, like harder. <laughs> you know, if if it, if, uh, if your uh, religion, if your expression of Christianity or your theology kind of like um, convicts you to care about uh, the climate catastrophe <laughs> in some way, then I guess degrowth is really helpful because it kind of gives you like sort of a direction to head off and maybe some like handles to, to you know, pick up the problem and think through it a little bit more. Yeah, that's true. And now that you say that, it, it's also helpful, I think, because in ecotheology as a discourse, there's lots of different tributaries or kind of streams or threads, I guess, whatever your metaphor might be. Um, of ecotheology. So there is a kind of tradition that emerges in Latin America that is, it comes out of liberation theology, so you get a kind of attention to political issues. Um, there are other kinds of ecotheologies too, though, that are maybe a little bit more like, I mean, I think they're worth reading, like I don't want to disparage them, but they, they don't attend to the political side. They're a bit more spiritualized or kind of... Right. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's like getting back to nature, getting attuned with nature and so on. And I think that is actually pretty important, like trying to, you know, rethink our relationship to nature and kind of re-narrate that and our place in it and all that like that is great. But without this attention to the political side of that, too, or kind of being willing to like follow, OK, if you have that uh, comportment toward the natural world, what does that commit you to politically? Then uh, you're just going to kind of be stuck <laughs> with some really weird affects, I think. You know, a desire to be close to nature. Meanwhile, our economy is like actively destroying it <laughs> with no no way out. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it's degrowth is maybe helpful for that reason, too. It gives it gives some uh, some contours to what to do, um, some political contours without also being like maybe as scary as just talking right out the gate about socialism or whatever. compulsory veganism <laughs> yeah exactly the scariest thing of all <laughs> yeah um so all right we're gonna talk about christianity growth degrowth it's all gonna come out of here and we're gonna use this book to kind of organize that conversation a bit um we've talked about environmentalism a lot on the show especially more recently but it's always worth going back to it especially talking about how christians think about environmentalism already um, if they do at all, I guess. And let's start as we usually do, Matt. I'm going to ask you: When you were growing up as an evangelical Christian, what was the vibe around the environment? <laughs> uh, that's a very funny question. When I was growing up as an evangelical Christian, the vibe was uh, <laughs> uh, 
nothing. There's no vibe around the environment, like, at all. I don't think I ever heard anybody talk about it, really. You know, I think the, the most anyone ever talked about the environment was, like, when we'd go on a mission trip to help people do something. You know, there's a flood, and, and now we're going to go help people. or We're going to raise money for somebody's house who, that's you know, burnt down or whatever. Um, but I don't know. I don't remember any big conversations about the environment because I think it's kind of like, you know, that's out, especially for an evangelical church. That's outside the experience of like praying the sinner's prayer and becoming saved and born again or yeah. something. So it's just like, you know, I don't know. No one would ever talk about that. Um, that that's about it, though. I don't know. Do, in your evangelical experience, I mean, did you did they talk about that? Is that a thing? No. Uh, well, I guess I'll say yes and no. Like when I was in elementary school and was catholic in a catholic family going to catholic school um we talked about like recycling like reduce reuse recycle but i think that was more of a 90s thing (laughs) you know what i mean just like in the cultural milieu and because i was in school it was just around um i I guess i wouldn't have connected it with my faith identity or something as like a kid uh but in high school and as an evangelical Christian, certainly not at all until college. And I think that was when there was this kind of burgeoning conversation around creation care. Stewardship was the big kind of watchword. Um, yeah. All that was yeah. kind of in vogue. Right. So it was like a moment of evangelicals trying to have a conversation about the environment, but also like spinning themselves into knots over what to do about that. Mm-hmm. Um which I think is very interesting uh, for a lot of reasons, right? So in evangelicalism, on the one hand, you often get this apocalyptic sensibility where the earth is not really our home. It's just going to burn away eventually. So like, why bother? And that is a thing that evangelicals have literally argued (laughs) against uh, environmentalism, right? Like it's going to all go away. So I guess, I don't know, you shouldn't bother making it any better because why would you? Um, I think that's a bad argument on its own merits, but nevertheless, pretty powerful. Um, And then on the other hand, you get this kind of turn toward uh, an evangelical eco responsibility, but still based with some based in some kind of challenging theological ideas uh, around the the centrality of the human person or the vocation of humanity among creation as the kind of, you know, the master of all other things. So you get this weird kind of humans are like uniquely responsible for stewarding the environment or kind of keeping track of it. Um, But at the same time, they're still kind of like the pinnacle of creation. Um, Yeah. So lots of weird stuff, at least that was the the discourse in college. Right. You know, uh, when I was researching the articles for Sojourners, I was looking into some of those like really evangelical environmental movements. And there are kind of like a a handful of interesting things that sort of emerge around that in particular. Um, The one that kind of sticks out to me, though, just I don't know, I'm not really looking at anything in particular right now, just kind of in my brain, (laughs) that there is this thing that still exists called the Evangelical Environmental Network. And it is uh, it's like a really loosely, I don't know. Um, it's just like a, it's just a nonprofit. It's a, it's a network of sort of like churches, uh, and Christian communities, I suppose, who are interested in creation care. Um, it was, if I recall correctly, it was formed in like the the early nineties, like 1993. And yeah, I mean, they pick up a lot of those currents, I think of creation care kind of early and they start kind of creating, I think like educational resources for churches to kind of figure out what they should do. Right. Um, and, you know, when you kind of look into their literature, it's nothing objectionable. <laughs> it's fine. It's like 
it's evangelical theology, so that's kind of icky and like kind of turns me off right away. But that's because of my own um, <laughs> my own baggage, I suppose, and maybe wouldn't uh, wouldn't be bad to all people. But anyways, the um, in some of their resources, it's like you know, how do you make sure that your church has uh, you know how how would you get your church to be you know a, a, like net zero emissions or something, or <laughs> how would you make sure that your church is like actually energy efficient? And it's like, uh, the answer is like, well, you know, you have to buy these types of light bulbs. You can get this like timer system so that, you know, your church mm-hmm. only uses a little bit of electricity. So, you know, I mean, it's like, it's, it's the, those are the kinds of answers that, that evangelical Christians have kind of gotten themselves up to, uh, when it comes to creation care, right? You should care about the environment. And there's lots of like ways to kind of justify that through Bible verses and church history and all these kinds of things. That's very interesting. But when it comes down to it, it's like, what should you do? It's like, well, you should buy a different kind of light bulbs. <laughs> And um, I don't know, uh, uh, this side of the IPCC reports, it seems like that's very silly. <laughs> like, you know, uh, the we, this is a uh, some statistics that I think you, you we repeat a lot on this podcast, but you read a lot of other places, too. But like, um, you know, we are we are set. We are going the, the earth will heat up uh, on average one point five degrees uh, Celsius. And there's like nothing you can do about that. <laughs> it's just going to happen. Right. But the bigger question is, um, you know, if we don't change the way that we produce and, uh, the way we consume things kind of endlessly, uh, the, the world will end up heating up a lot more in the next, uh, century. Anyways, we need to do more, more than just light bulbs. And I guess that's why I think things like degrowth are really actually important because, you know, maybe the theology is telling you, you should care about the earth. You should care about the environment. You should care about, you know, the whole ecosystem, and that's great. And it's great that the that your church community would be giving you those kinds of uh, impulses. I think that's positive. Um, but without like a real sort of plan about what to do, it's like you're going to be buying light bulbs, man. <laughs> and that's it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And uh, I think maybe that's also a good kind of excuse to start talking a little bit more about why degrowth is helpful. Um, the term itself is challenging, degrowth. Uh, it's challenging for people on the left, um, but also many others, uh, because in some ways it is not exactly accurate, I think is fair to say. Um, and they talk about this in the book as well, uh, whether or not the term is useful. Um, the reason I say it's not exactly accurate is it doesn't mean that every single thing in our society has to shrink. And that is a misnomer. It also doesn't mean that all populations have to shrink. It's not a Malthusianism where you got to get rid of all the poor people or whatever. Uh, It's specifically our economy is organized around uh, a model of growth, uh, profit accelerated and driven kind of growth. And those that kind of model needs to be done away with. We have to degrow measurements like the gross domestic product, the GDP. We have to degrow certain sectors of our economy for sure, right? Um, Dirty industries and so on. And at the same time, we have to also grow all kinds of other stuff, Uh, grow maybe our social supports, grow uh, sustainable kinds of industry, all that kind of thing. And we could talk about that in more detail in a minute. But I think it's helpful just to kind of start parsing out, right? Like, all right, buying different light bulbs, setting your church on a timer. I think those are probably things still worth doing. Um, But unless we confront the fundamental sort of issues of growth and the fetishization of profit growth in our society, 
then you're just going to keep on buying light bulbs while the earth gets hotter and hotter. And at the end of the day, you'll have done a ton of work for nothing. So <laughs> might as well uh, try to kind of attack it at the roots. Uh, and I think that's what's great about degrowth. It's trying to find systematic ways of talking about and organizing around a really particular understanding of like, what is the kind of growth that is that is responsible for heating up the planet by 1.5 degrees? Yeah, that's right. Um, do, doing a lot of work for nothing. Uh, that's what Christianity is all about in a lot of ways. But let's not do it in this in this case. Let's make sure there is an eternal reward after. And the eternal reward is a planet people can live on. A minute ago, Dean, you said that that there's growth is sort of fetishistic. I think that's a really good word to use. In, uh, in Futures Degrowth, they describe growth, uh, economic growth, as a type of ideology. And I think that's also a really helpful descriptor because uh, the idea that growth is good or that growth is like the measurement of something being successful is really ideological. I think in the Marxist sense, you know, like in the, when Marx talks about ideology, he talks about, you know, you're doing it, but you don't know you're doing it. And I think that's a great, (laughs) a great way to think about uh, growth because that's how people are always thinking about growth. You know, if, if a program at a school is growing and getting more students, um, it must be good. Or if a business is growing, it must be good. Um, but uh, this bu- this book goes to point out that's actually, you know, maybe not true. <laughs> maybe maybe growing is not always very good, especially when uh, we're not really considering what is growing. The authors of the book kind of go on to talk about the um, the 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 uselessness, maybe. Of, of GDP growth, right, of gross domestic product growth. So if you, you know, if, if you read any kind of thing about the economy, if you read like a news report, a jobs report, you know, that's telling you about how dark Joe Brandon is doing with this great economy, um, it's going to tell you about GDP growth, right? That's, um, that's the important thing. And actually, lately, people have been talking about GDP growth quite a bit. Um, because, you know, if um, if there are two quarters that go by and there is negative GDP growth, then that means you know, there's no there's no GDP growth. That means we're in a recession. Right. That's what everyone's really worried about right now. Um, but something that's really interesting about GDP is that, um, you know, you think when when the when the number goes up, that means it's good. But actually, GDP tells you like not very much about the economy. It tells you that, you know, there's more gross domestic product and that's great, <laughs> whatever that is. Um, but it's like sort of textureless. It's sort of a blob, right? Like uh, if the GDP of, a, of an economy goes up, you know, that means that there's more gross domestic product, it's higher, there's more money, whatever. But it doesn't tell you like who's getting that growth or who's seeing the benefits of it. Like, is it workers? Is it CEOs? Is it, you know, who? Who exactly? Is it you and I? And and that's impossible for us to say because GDP doesn't tell you that information. I mean, we can figure out in other ways because, um, you know, GDP goes up. Who's who's seeing that growth? Like, who is that really good for? And it's good for, like, you know, very wealthy people. And it doesn't matter so much for workers. It does in some sort of like, um, you know, dominoes kind of down the down the pipeline way because um, those things are all kind of interconnected. But uh, you, you get what I mean here, right? Um, GDP is is a, is a measurement, but it doesn't tell you everything you want to know. Um, in, in the Futures Degrowth, they say this about GDP. GDP measurements fail to take into account who gets paid for which work and, and how this is distributed within a society. This means that unpaid activities such as housework and care, self-sufficiency and subsistence or voluntary work, as well as stewardship of the land, are not included. An increase in car accidents, for example, can therefore increase the GDP through medical treatment, car repairs, and so on, and so can environmental destruction if it leads to more paid work. 
So GDP can tell you some things that there's more money, there's more gross domestic product, and that's fine. But it doesn't tell you all of the like nuts and bolts of that, right? Um, and some of those are, are really bad, right? You wouldn't, just, just because, um, you, you know, uh, a, a climate catastrophe, like, um, like a big flood, right? That's going to lead to some GDP growth in an area because that means that like, someone's going to have to come out and fix all these houses and there's sort of more um, more money circulating through the economy and all these kinds of things, but it's bad. So anyways, uh, the thing about uh, growth as an ideology that's so interesting is that we think it's just good. When, when growth happens, we're all clapping and excited. Thank you, Joe Biden. Um, but uh, in fact, a lot of the results could be bad and we wouldn't even really know it because uh, we, <laughs> we don't think past uh, that kind of top line analysis of economic growth. Yeah, I think it's good to talk about GDP in particular because it is something that really controls decision-making in our societies. It is a way that societies measure themselves against one another. It's also a way that some societies disparage other ones, um, particularly socialist ones. And in this book, too, there is also a kind of uh, weird logic to GDP that can even catch people on the left off guard where it's like uh, an obsession with productivism or, um, you know, making the wine go up right to compete with capitalism. Um, I think they maybe overplay their hand a little bit in the book on that point, but it's true. There is there is a, a, a real sort of competition sometimes even between socialists and capitalists where socialists also want to say, look, we could grow too at a rate that's really uh, exponential and incredible and so on. And that it's a real kind of ideology, even beyond capitalism, right? The the kind of valorization of growth itself. Um, zeroing in on GDP in a capitalist society, though, is really unique because it is uh, the kind of thing that if you turn on, you know, uh, CNN or Fox News or these kind of big outlets, news outlets, when they're reporting on jobs reports or a kind of economic forecasts or reports from, you know, the Fed, the Fed, the Federal Bank or whatever, um, when they start talking about the GDP, they at, they talk about it as though that's like a great measurement of society, as though when the GDP is going up and up and up, that means everything else is going great, too. And that kind of logic relies on the sort of Ronald Reagan story about trickle-down economics, right? If, uh, if the rich people are making a ton of money, inevitably it's going to fall down and cascade. Um, but just as Matt was saying, it kind of obscures all these other things or doesn't ask the question of who is getting what. Um, it's also just a bad measurement for lots of other reasons. Like, it doesn't measure not only unpaid good work, like care work and so on, but also like criminal economies or black markets or other ways that money transfers in really insidious kinds of ways or the ways that money escapes being uh, calculated through GDP by tax havens or even the way that like labor that adds value to a product across the supply chain around the world in a kind of globalized production system um, that doesn't get accounted for in GDP either. Nevertheless, it is the measurement by which, like, you know, when Joe Biden talks to people about the economy, he's talking about the GDP <laughs> on the whole. Um, so what's great about degrowth, I think, is that it's actually calling our attention to the way that these kind of uh, capitalist constructions, like these fictions or, um, you know, imaginary numbers the capitalists develop, uh, they really run our societies in many respects. And uh, nevertheless, most of us, I mean, why would you ever care about A, what GDP is, <laughs> and B, what it can or can't tell you about the world? So I appreciate degrowth as like 
also giving us a bit of a language to uh, see that and, and really highlighting certain things that, like I said, kind of make our societies go round. That's right. Well, so the other piece of uh, economic growth within the context of degrowth, right? If I mean, we're, we'll talk about degrowth in a minute. But the other piece of it, though, is that uh, growth is the thing that kind of like stabilizes capitalism in one way or another. Um, like the growth of the growth of uh, GDP, I don't know, in theory, at least, and it doesn't, I mean, a lot of times it should lead to more jobs and like higher paying jobs. And that sort of stabilizes the whole capitalist system to kind of keep people um, you know, working, right? Because if, if wages stagnate too much, people won't work in some industries and, and so on, which is actually, you know, uh, what's happening now too. But um, but I think that's the, the other part of, about growth that's really uh, important sort of ideologically is that not only is uh, the capitalist economy sort of like growing um, and, and, you know, that means something really specific, but that's like kind of how it sort of makes sure that it doesn't all sort of fall apart. Um, it has to keep growing so that it's also sort of stable. So it's like uh, coherent and cohesive and, and, and it keeps it keeps working sort of towards the the further furthering its growth. Right. Sort of a it's not a perpetual motion machine because you have to put a lot more in it than you get out. But uh, it's that kind of thing. Right. You um, it has to be constantly fed to kind of make sure it doesn't just stop and we all have no economy at all. Yeah, I mean, maybe one example, and then we can go to degrowth uh, of how that stabilization happens, or at least how <laughs> maybe stabilization is probably a bad word for this particular thing. More like uh, uh, the kind of destabilizing logic that growth uh, interjects into capitalism or something. Um, so capitalists are all about trying to get more capital out of the production process than they put into it, right? So what I mean by that is you've got a hundred bucks. You want to start a great lemonade stand on your block and you invest that hundred bucks into all the things you need to make lemonade, um, you know, the materials for the whatever, the lemonade stand, all the ingredients that you need. And at the end, you hope that you make more money than what you put into it, right? You don't just want your $100 back. You want $150 back or $200 or whatever. Um, and that's that's sort of capitalism in a nutshell, right? Uh, and that's what capitalists are. They want to get more out what they put into it. Uh, but why? I guess the question is, why can't capitalists just be sort of happy with the amount of money they have? And the authors of the book actually do a great job kind of summarizing what Marx has to say about why this is. And this is just sort of one reason for growth, but I think it's a great one. So this is kind of a long paragraph, but I think it's helpful. So they say, because of market competition, the productive forces moving forward through technological improvements and the competitive need to accumulate capital, a large part of the profits must be reinvested into acquiring more capital. This creates a continuous accumulation process. The fact that the generated surplus value or constantly reinvested in the purchase of better and more modern machines, more or cheaper materials, or the employment of more or more productive workers is not the result of the individual greed of the capitalist. Due to the competition for market shares and advances in productivity, investing is not an arbitrary decision, but a constraint that restricts all actions of owners of capital and dominates the entire economic system. Those who lag behind in the pursuit of extra profits through better production methods, technical progress, or more efficient organization of work lose market share to competition, lack the resources for updating their machinery to the newest standards, and thus sooner or later lose the basis of their business. The pressure on society as a whole to grow production, 
also flows or follows from this dynamic of accumulation. So what they're saying here, just to maybe repackage it in a briefer way, is that there is actually a really weird dynamic in capitalism, a competitive dynamic where if a capitalist isn't reinvesting kind of the fruits of their business, the profits that they make into the process of production so that they can keep on outpacing all those other capitalists who are kind of, you know, in their tier of producing stuff, then eventually they're going to get left behind. And if you get left behind too many times, you you can't profit and you go bankrupt, right? So the weird thing about capitalism as an economic system is it's kind of a rigged game. Like it forces growth, uh, not only because capitalists are greedy, although they are, um, and they do get more than they need, and they get even more than they need to reinvest, and they don't always reinvest in their businesses and so on. Uh, nevertheless, they're compelled to try to get as much as possible because the only security you really have in capitalism is that sort of ability to know that you could inject capital into your business at any time, right? <laughs> you could grow and you should be growing as much as you can so that you can always grow faster than the person next to you. Yep, that's it. Well, let's talk about degrowth then um, and kind of get into that piece of it. And then uh, we'll turn towards theology and Christianity and all that kind of great stuff. So degrowth uh, is, you know, the opposite, but kind of a hard opposite, a, a complicated one maybe <laughs> of growth, right? Um, the authors of The Future's Degrowth says that the, you know, degrowth is this idea where, um, you know, some things have to be shrunk. Uh, they have to, they have to ungrow, if you will, <laughs> degrow even. Um, but, but the ways in which that happens, um, the sort of priorities of that degrowth are kind of like complicated because there's a lot of different currents, a lot of different threads, like you were saying earlier, Dean, to, depending on which, which, uh, which metaphor we want to use. Uh, so the authors say this, degrowth is above all a movement in motion and should be considered an umbrella term for various movements and frameworks on the left. Nonetheless, there have been various attempts to define what constitutes a degrowth society. So to begin with, degrowth is, by and large, defined as a proposal for a future society and a goal to work towards. Right. So the assumption here is that um, the Earth as we know it uh, is finite, right? Um, it, it has boundaries that you, we just can't push past because it's impossible to do so by, by the nature of sort of the, the, uh, the, the Earth and the sort of larger ecosystems uh, rules. Um, you can't push past them. So um, infinite growth is delusional. It's not possible. You can't do it as much as capitalists want it to happen. Um, there's a whole lot of like arguments and critiques of growth that uh, come out in this book that we don't really have time to get into. But uh, the idea is that we have to sort of like prioritize different parts of our society over others. So, you know, um, an economy that functions off of like lots of service workers, um, uh, production and consumption of lots of plastic goods is not sustainable. We can't do it, right? So we have to figure out ways to degrow some of those sectors um, and then uh, turn them towards like other things, right? So I think that degrowth is, it's an umbrella term for sure that has lots of these sort of like, different ideas about what needs to be degrown or, or what kind of things need to be tweaked and pushed. There's lots of things going on here and I'll get into them in a second. But I think that the a really helpful way to think about degrowth is that like, it is like, um, it's trying to ask it's trying to ask uh, a different question of society, right? It's trying to say, you know, if if growth is not possible, what is it that society should be doing for people, right? What what kind of things and priorities should we actually have in the world? You know, should should they be about um, 
Should they be about capitalism at all? Should they be about growth at all? Should it actually instead be about, you know, um, taking care of one another or prioritizing questions of social justice and ecological justice? You know, so it's it's a it's a type of like political philosophy that uh, just fundamentally asks different questions about society than I think uh, the capitalist framework does in general. So to get at some of these like different questions, there are these these different currents of degrowth that the authors of the book lay out. And I think that they're kind of helpful for getting your mind around some different ideas and and how they might kind of fit into the puzzle, right? So the authors of the book lay out all these different types of approaches to degrowth, right? And some of them are more compelling than others. Like, for example, uh, there's one that's called institutional orientation, where it's like the government is telling you use less electricity or whatever. That's an oversimplification, but that's basically the idea, right? Um, that's one not super excited about. But there are others that are like, um, you know, like there's a feminist current within degrowth um, that's about, you know, how how does reproductive rights, how does uh, care work and all these kinds of like, um, you know, feminist uh, concerns, uh, how does that factor into degrowth? And actually, it's quite a lot. Um, and there's others about, you know, sort of like alter globalization. Um, how does the sort of north and south um, work work these kind of questions out? So lots of different ideas about degrowth um, and like what that could mean. So <laughs> it's hard to kind of like get into it all. But like, you know, um, if if you were just kind of proposing like or you want to get an idea about like some policies or ideas that are kind of like degrowth um, adjacent or ideas that degrowth people might be interested in. You know, it's like, um, how do you get people to drive less cars? Uh, how do you get, you know, like through public transit or whatever else, right? Um, is luxury air travel something that is, you know, super necessary? Are there other ways we can think about that? Um, how do you get people to eat less meat? How do you get people to use less plastic? You know, all these kinds of questions. Um, how, how would you uh, build a city so it needs um less electricity to cool buildings you know all of these are, are great sort of degrowth questions because at the core it's like how do we fundamentally um, change the way that we live so that uh, parts of the economy that are needlessly big can be shrunken down and sort of like everyone can live a better life because of it right those are sort of the, the core ideas yeah i think that is kind of the value of the book i guess is that it has this sort of survey of different movements and um you know, different currents and, and that sort of thing. And I think you've summarized some of the, the really exciting ones really well. Um, and I guess that's where the question of like, how does Christianity fit under this umbrella alongside all these other things, right? There's an institutional approach. There's an, an eco-feminist approach. Um, where does eco-theology come in? And, you know, on the one hand, like it's always going to be a bit limited, um, especially insofar as it comes out of a Christian discourse. So it's not to suggest that eco-theology has the, the ultimate say, but rather to say, how does it sort of fit alongside these other movements? That's kind of the other side of the conversation. Where does it um, find its own voice contributing to these kind of efforts? And I think that is actually something that is really valuable on the one, I guess <laughs> it's valuable because it comes out of the global South, right? Uh, liberation theology, eco-theology, it already is sort of emerging from the regions of the world that a lot of degrowth literature is really invested in. Um, one thing I like about degrowth is it puts a lot of emphasis on international solidarity and accountability toward the global South. Um, and so that's really great. Uh, but it also has this way of kind of balancing both the sort of disposition changes that we need, right? A spiritual change and that systemic change. So I don't know, Matt, maybe we could talk a little bit about like how Christians can get into degrowth and maybe what 
liberation theology and eco-theology offer that conversation. Um, so, for example, like a lot of eco-theologians will point to the, the biblical sort of examples of different relationships to the land and to the economy in general. And I think that's something Christians could really lean into as we're finding our own way through uh, a growth-oriented capitalist society. So, for example, like if we think about something like the Jubilee or the tradition of the, the sabbatical for the land in the Bible, these are themes where in ancient Israel and uh, in ways that get picked up by Jesus in the New Testament, um, there's this kind of assumption that growth is not only not everything, but is actually actively subverted all the time. Um, so if you remember in the tradition of Jubilee, the biblical Jubilee, um, if you owe a debt to somebody uh, or if your land, even like your territory expands, all that stuff gets reset in the Jubilee year. So you can grow for a while, but that growth is not going to be final. It's not going to be preserved or even protected. In fact, it's going to be undermined at a certain point. And that is like how the biblical economy was supposed to work, right? <laughs> a very anti-growth, actually, kind of vision uh, for human goods. Um, you get that same sort of logic present in uh, the Jubilee tradition of the prophets, where there's the setting of the captive free, the uh, pro proclamation of release to the prisoners, and so on. There's this kind of uh, upending of everything that you get in the Bible. You can't really have the economy settle into a model of perpetual growth. And in fact, that's something that the Christian tradition has struggled with. Uh, the, the merchant class was constantly trying to argue in Europe, like, listen, we're not trying to do something wrong, <laughs> right? And you had theologians being like, actually, what you're doing is wrong, uh, not right, uh, unnatural in terms of Christian theological economy. Um, and there's more to that story. Obviously, the theologians ended up siding with the merchants over time, and here we are. But uh, it's all very interesting anyway to kind of go through that biblical tradition and find that already there's this kind of anti-growth piece or, uh, you know, um, trying to head off the problems that growth economies naturally create, uh, inequalities and so on. Yeah, you know, I think that there's a lot of Christians on the right that love to just like ignore that whole kind of thing, you know, or, or just contextualize within the Bible. You know, conservatives will say really bonkers things that like, you know, the Bible has nothing to say about economics or, or social justice or economic justice, but like clearly it does, right? And I mean, as people on the left, um, you, you know, the Bible's great. I love it. I think it's uh, got some really cool stuff in there. It's also got some pretty questionable stuff in there, too, but that's OK. Um, but I guess the thing is that, like, you know, if you're a person who takes the Bible very seriously, if you're a Christian who thinks it's important and if you're not, that's fine, whatever. But if you are, I mean, you have to recognize the ways that, like, um, uh, these ideas about uh, about economic justice, these ideas about um you know, not putting growth above all things, those are on the table if you read the Bible. I mean, they're kind of unavoidable, right? If you if you do read the Jubilee story, if that's an important piece for you, which it should be, I guess, uh, you can't really deny that, like, that is on the table, that uh, you do have to come to terms with that somehow. And uh, the, the, the Bible has a particular, I mean, not the whole Bible, sometimes it's odds of the self, but, like, there are parts of the Bible that have, some, like, a really particular economic ethic, and, uh, I don't know, you can't just write that off because you don't like it. Yeah, and at the very least, like, 
whether you're a Christian or not, the Bible is a pre-capitalist kind of text. And what that means, too, is that it's operating with values that are pre-capitalist. It's valorizing things that are not oriented around a capitalist economy. And I guess it's just one more alternative way of being a person in the world or imagining what people should do as communities in the world. And, you know, surprise, it's not uh, capitalism, right? <laughs> there are other ways of, of doing things. Um, so I think that is just kind of helpful to destabilize a logic of historical inevitability or to suggest that growth is somehow baked into human society. Like, this is the other argument you get on the right in general, Christian or otherwise, that capitalism is the natural state of things. Uh, people left to their own devices would just do capitalism because that's economic science. And that's clearly not true because for thousands of years, for actually the majority of human history, people were not capitalists. So <laughs> it, it can't be natural insofar as people have not naturally done it. Uh, it had to be produced in really specific ways that are actually bloody and violent and very gross. And so when we kind of think through the Bible, even as kind of a testament to something that's not capitalist because it, it happened outside of capitalism, um, it just gives us some other maybe uh, foundations on which we could think about stuff. Yeah, totally. Well, I mean, there's all kinds of things kind of going on theologically, I think, around degrowth, too, like some different threads we might kind of pick up. Um, you know, when it comes to eco-theology, there's uh, a lot of reliance uh, on on Genesis, like on the, in the creation story. I think that's really interesting. Um, you know, that's where I think a lot of people go to, especially when it comes to things like creation care. Um where, you know, it's like it, Christians have sort of this like uh, stewardship over over the planet and that kind of thing. Right. Um, but there's also this like more spiritual side to it that I think is actually kind of interesting. Um, <laughs> I feel like uh, I do. I have like a sort of allergy to, all, to, to the spiritual side for sure. But um, it's like this this recognizing that like you kind of see a bit of God in nature. And isn't that kind of interesting um, and, you know, something to be in awe of or, or, or something. Um, and I think that's something there's there's something kind of interesting about that that uh, I think uh, people miss a lot of times or maybe just write off as like flowery, flowery kind of language or whatever. But um, there is a sort of spiritual comportment towards nature where if you really think about it um, and think about the creation story and you kind of like recognize God in that creation, there's, you know, something that should kind of change for you, too. Um, that maybe not every bit of the earth needs to be uh, paved over with asphalt <laughs> or whatever. Um, man, uh, which reminds me, in, in this degrowth book, there is this whole section about uh, material growth and how, oh, yeah. how much of the earth is like uh, <laughs> is concrete and uh, how much of the earth is plastic. And um, there's more plastic in the world than there are people. There's, or, or, uh, sorry, there's more plastic in the world than there is biomass. So that's people and animals. Um, so anyways... <laughs> maybe if uh if you do take really seriously some of that like flowery language that spiritual language in in genesis and elsewhere throughout the bible i don't know maybe we would think a little bit different about our relationship towards nature as well um a few weeks ago we talked about uh, leonardo boff and and uh we talked about degrowth a little bit too then but you know it's it's about kind of finding this new kind of harmony or relationship with nature where um you have some kind of like affinity for it um, more so than I think. Uh... Yeah, um, I like to those kinds of biblical uh, spiritual dispositions that are based in, I guess, a certain a certain kind of trust that creation is meant to be participated in by human beings. I mean, sometimes this gets worked out in really gross ways where you get a kind of like 
you know, weird theologies of abundance that are like totally disconnected from reality <laughs> or whatever. But when Jesus says something like you should consider the birds of the air or the li- the lilies of the field who are not concerned about tomorrow, uh, God gives them whatever they need for the for today. Um, it it comes out of a kind of excess or like a faith that you don't really have to um, store up all these big accumulative models of <laughs> capital. Um, but there are other ways of being uh, a human being. And I was actually thinking about that when in this uh, degrowth book, there's a really neat piece on uh, dépenses, which is a kind of um, French uh, term that comes from George Bataille, who's a really wild uh, French philosopher. And the idea is that uh, it's trying to describe this phenomenon in non-capitalist societies where uh, things that people make, um, if there's a big surplus, they just like expend it in these unproductive ways. So like they throw a big feast with all the food at the end of the year um, instead of like saving it or hoarding it or that kind of thing. And it's, I mean, there's a lot to say about that, but I think there's a kind of like biblical uh, resonance with that, right? That like, um, not everything has to be productive. Like you can even waste some things in a way that is healthy. Um, You can solve problems of like overproduction or the overabundance of nature by simply enjoying those things instead of having like a mindset of austerity and scarcity all the time. And I think that is also kind of a maybe a Christian disposition that with degrowth might kind of lend to some other ways of just thinking about what it means to be a person living through, you know, a society that is constantly producing too much and like not doing the right things with all that overproduction. Yeah, you know, that's a a great thing to bring up Um, in uh, in that big umbrella term of degrowth. Right. There are two ideas that kind of really come out that I think vibe with what you're saying. Um, there's one that's uh, called the sufficiency-oriented approach, one that I think is actually um, I like a lot, even though I think it has, you know, shortcomings or whatever. But um, in in the book, when, when the authors talk about the sufficiency-oriented approach, it's about, like, um, finding sort of, like, do-it-yourself, local, voluntarily simplistic ways of sort of, like, uh, relying on one another outside of the, the capitalist market. <laughs> and I think that's really cool. You know, it's like solidarity economy stuff. It's like, uh, it's like that good, crunchy, like we got a neighborhood garden and isn't that great? And it is great. Um, And there's another one too about like uh, the idea of, about the idea of commoning, right? About the construction of sort of like an alternative type of infrastructure, like alongside capitalism or something, right? Like you're living in a cool, intentional community. Um, And they talk about the the idea of nowtopias, right? The, The utopia that you're doing this very moment anyways both are, are kind of like along those lines and i think that uh i don't know christians have actually been i think in involved in those types of communities before in the past and you know yeah it's definitely a uh it's a waypoint for thinking about how christians ought to kind of exist into the future uh, yeah in, in you know i was talking with somebody not too long ago about um <laughs> uh retirements and like pensions and thinking about the future and all that kind of stuff And uh, I was like, you know, sometimes I feel like a fool because I'm probably not doing everything I ought to do. And maybe when I'm old, I'll be like, dang, why was I so dumb? And just trying to figure that out as a Christian person in the world. And I was talking with this person who is a bit older than me about all that. And something that he said that was very interesting was he was like, well, 
you know, I think it's true. You could like invest a ton of money in the market or wherever else. And like you can get it back because it will grow over time in the market because that is what money does. And like that is fine. But in doing that, you kind of end up getting your conscience entangled and all this other weird stuff. I mean, if you have a pension, for example, it's probably tied to lots of things that are extremely bad and uh, you don't really get to choose what you want to do about that. Um, And that sucks. And uh, he was like, you know, I'm kind of choosing to really invest in my relationships and my community around me so that like one day when I'm old and actually need help, I won't have to be like, oh, well, I have enough money to like buy something or pay somebody to do this. But rather, like I've created a kind of community around me such that I can rely on that. Like I have faith that those people will pull me through. I'm a good person going through the world in a good way. And this person was like, that is very naive. Like, I know it's naive, but I do believe it. And I was like, man, what a huge thing to like bet your future on. But also like a pretty radical and kind of Christian thing to do. And man, I mean, it threw me for a loop, but it really definitely got me thinking in terms of degrowth as well, right? Instead of uh, trusting your future to the growth of the market in ways that are definitely bad, uh, instead trusting it to this kind of, uh, yeah, solidarity mode of living outside of of that whole logic. Yeah, um, there's something to that. You know, um, knowing people in your community, (laughs) acting in a way so they like you. Some pretty foreign concepts, I think, to people, but <laughs> but they're good. To be clear, I do have a pension, and I'm not going to get rid of it. <laughs> but um, I am going to be nicer to my neighbors, I guess. That's you could do. Story. You could do both and be fine. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, you know, one other kind of thing as we're kind of nearing the end here that it got me thinking of was uh, Pope Francis. Also, we talked about this in a past episode that in La Odyssey there are these kind of degrowth moments, and Francis talks about things like an ecological debt that people in the global north owe to countries in the global south. And I think that is all great. Um, But it makes me think that degrowth is also a really good horizon for people who are at least thinking in the Catholic tradition or adjacent to it, that all these pieces of Catholic social teaching, for instance, an emphasis on participatory democracy, an emphasis on even like subsidiarity and all kinds of other stuff, right? Common goods, uh, private property or private goods should never ever supersede common goods, but vice versa. Um, All that kind of stuff is exactly what degrowth is trying to talk about. Um, There are a handful of things written. I mean, Matt wrote a great Sojourner's piece, as we talked about. Uh, Last year, there was a piece in National Catholic Reporter on Laudato Si and degrowth specifically. And there's like a couple of articles I could find just kind of looking through the library system. So I think it's a conversation that's like emerging and naturally people are finding the links there. But uh, it's good to just, I guess, flag that as like if in that tradition, and I'm sure in other traditions too, I'm sure Protestants have ways of talking about this, but I don't know what they are. Um, Catholics have kind of found these points of resonance, points of engagement, and maybe that's like one other future path in the 21st century for like those of us who are still invested in liberation theology, Catholic social teaching, and so on. Maybe that's one path forward to like, you know, trying to actually figure out a workable solution to how to realize some of these principles instead of just talking about them to each other at church or whatever. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, there's real political, I mean, there's political goals here. I mean, there's like existential goals here, you know, like if, uh, if we don't pay attention to these things, um, not just as a church community or as a religious group or whatever, uh, but as like an entire species, we're going to be pretty deeply in trouble. Um, but I think this is good, right? Because it, it gives you sort of like, um, 
Well, I guess this is how I think about it. I, I, I think often about this time when I was at uh, a different church, a different part of my life altogether, but we were uh, reading the Bible and kind of doing sort of this Bible study together, and people would talk about the environment and, and we need to do something or whatever. But it was never really clear to people exactly what it was that we ne- needed to do. Um, and I I can empathize with that quite a bit um, because, I don't know, I, I often don't know what to do. Um, but I, I think that degrowth helps us because it kind of gives you a direction to go or at least some some handles to think about the situation, right? Like, we know that the Earth is finite. It has a f- sort of like finite balance when it comes to um, how much carbon you can put in the air before it gets too hot for us and other things to live on it. Um, so, so we know that, right? And and then we have to kind of figure out ways to move forward and sort of shift our society in, into different uh, different modes of being. Um, and um, I think that's something that you can talk to people about. And it's it's possible to have those kinds of conversations, right? What would it mean for our church to start engaging in some of that work? What would it mean, you know, or your faith community or your group of friends or whatever, whoever it is, it doesn't have to be your church. But, um, you know, I think, I think those are good questions to ask. Like how, um, how can you, wherever you are, kind of find, um, you know, the pressure points, the choke points that you need in, in your spots to kind of like push people in, in that direction? I think those are really good questions to have, at least like, you know, maybe you don't have all the answers and, and maybe this will kind of come off imperfect and short-sighted or, you know, maybe you'll make a mistake, whatever. People are always messing up, no big deal. But you do have like a direction to go. And I think that's fundamentally helpful. Like things can actually be done. The world is not over if we choose it to not be. <laughs> um, and uh, I, I don't know, I guess that's kind of where the, the conversation gets me. Yeah, I think that's great. So uh, the future is degrowth. If you want to figure out what to do, if you want to go to your church and find out how to move beyond just complaining about the environment or stewardship or whatever, um, it will not give you exactly a, a roadmap, <laughs> not exactly a handbook, but it will definitely give you more tools than you had before, I think. It's a great springboard. It gives you some parameters, and you can plan an action, whatever it is uh, you need to do. Um, let's all read The Future is Degrowth, Lean Not Above, and all the rest of them. <laughs> Maybe we'll figure out what the heck it is Christians are supposed to be doing right now as the Earth heats up 1.5 degrees. Thanks for listening to The Magnificast. If you like what you're heard, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash The Magnificast. If you support us at the $2 level, you can get uh, an invite to our cool discord channel where we did read this book together so if you're interested in reading books <laughs> that's such a bad we pitch. talked about it a lot yeah <laughs> for four hours probably yeah 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 it's true um sorry uh if you're interested in reading books <laughs> again a hilariously bad pitch if you if you also like sharing memes with people and uh, looking at pi- pictures of people's animals uh, you can come on over to the Discord, and we'll we'll hook you right up with the the greatest pictures of dogs you've ever seen, and cats even, and sometimes possums. Okay. Uh, anyways, our intro music is by Amari Armstrong. Our outro music is by The Illogical Spoon, and we'll see you next week. I don't wanna get up for church in the morning. Church in the morning, souls alive. Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church We'll meet down by the riverside There we'll swim with all creation Never get tired, never bored Don't worry, someday there'll be no dam Between us and our Lord
Jackson, keep your hoods up, you keep your hoods up, and you stay up late. Jackson, you keep your hoods up, well you keep your hoods up, and you stay up late. Oh, don't mind, a cold night, but we might mind if you leave too soon. So come on now, it's still early, at least I would have.